Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Liz DeMontron. I am your host of this podcast series called the Deep Roots Forward Thinking Series, hosted by the Young Lockwood Sour team at UBS here in Houston. It's been a few months, so I'm glad to be back in the seat. It's been it's been too long. And I'm here with the gentleman who is quickly becoming my my co-host. Very young, the senior partner on the team. Hi, Liz. Hi, Barry. Good to be back in the studio. I know. Yeah, it feels good. And today we are joined by a guest, Jennifer Jones, who's with us from UBS Global Asset Management. She's in town from San Francisco. I took her out for enchiladas and margaritas last night. We had a great time and hopefully it was a good introduction to Houston. So welcome, Jennifer. Thanks, Liz. It was a wonderful introduction to Houston. I think any kind of right introduction should have several margaritas. And totally. That's the Texas way of doing it. It's the right way of doing it. <laughs> totally. Words to live by. Yes, especially as we, you know, get into our Houston summers. It's the least we could do was help you cool off with, with the margarita. You know, the past few years have been so interesting for many reasons, but especially in real estate as COVID has been such a huge disruptor to our day-to-day lives and the space we inhabit. And, you know, as we've come out of the pandemic, there are, you know, these forces like inflation and interest rates and work from home that have almost complicated the real estate sector more. So I know Barry and I and a number of our clients are really excited to hear your opinions and your insights during this time that seems noisy, you know, and is getting noisier. So, yeah, I guess before we hear from Jennifer and her background, Barry, do you have anything? Well, I wanted to kind of start off and maybe we'll get you to you know, respond to some of these questions. But I wanted to highlight just this week, UBS released its third annual Global Family Office Report, which is a survey where we go around the world and ask our clients, in this case, over 221 of the world's largest single family offices, kind of what their disposition is relative to a number of different topics. And Some of it is asset allocation, and some of it is sustainability. Some of it is governance. These are questions that are regularly being put to us where we are interfacing with this segment of the market who are oftentimes fairly informed, not quite institutional, but definitely with that kind of caliber of background. And we think their opinion is worth noting. And so I'm going to talk a little bit off some of the survey and see if Jen wouldn't mind responding to some of those findings, because there are some, I think, rather profound issues that a lot of the family offices have raised in concert with a lot of the turmoil that we've seen, particularly in interest rate markets. Okay. Without further ado, Jennifer, we'd love to hear from you more about your background and what led you to your role here. Sure. Well, first, thank you very much for having me on the show. It's great to be with you guys. What led me to be here? Well, I'm originally Canadian, so everyone needs to know that. I'm now duo citizenship, so I love both countries dearly, (laughs) but originally Canadian. And I grew up in real estate. My father's a developer. Both my parents were brokers as well. And so it was something I just kind of knew. Of course, I did everything possible to not work in the area my parents worked in for a while, but it was a calling, I think. I went to the University of British Columbia up in Vancouver, and then I started a development company building single-family homes. But, you know, I always wanted to live in the United States. So I, I went to Columbia, I got a master's degree, and fell in love with New York City. I started working at GE Capital and Acquisitions in the Northeast, and then came over to UBS in 2005. So I've been here ever since. We started working on the direct real estate side. I worked on a fund called the Global Property Fund that grew to be close to $16 billion of assets globally. And I worked on the North America component. 
I've worked on the direct side and I've joined the multi-manager team here at UBS in 2015. I'm now the senior portfolio manager of the Global Core Plus Fund, investing in trophy core assets all over the world through multiple managers. And then I'm also run the non-fund investment division of multi-managers real estate. So I sit on the investment committee and management committee. So see all of the transaction volume and deals that we deal with every day. Wow. I mean, so this is a space you've been in for the majority of your career. Aside from some bartending in college, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> worked in real estate my whole life. Um, but I've been working in commercial real estate for nearly 25 years now, so it's wow. it's definitely home. I should also give a shout out. I li- currently live in California. I'm a mom of two kids, Aaron and Edward, who are nine and seven, whom I love dearly, and just won the most recent baseball championship in Danville oh, Little League. No so. big deal. <laughs> shout out. Oh, that's so wonderful. That's so great. So I guess, you know, as a follow-up to that, which is super helpful, why is the global real estate asset class such a difficult one for investors to populate? It's interesting because it is extremely difficult. I think for a long time, you needed to be a $20, $30 billion pension fund to have access to the type of institutional products through joint ventures, direct access, or funds, mainly because commercial real estate, the ticket size is just so big. Right. When you're looking at an office building in New York City, you're talking about a billion plus dollars per asset. Also, it's a very local business. You really need to understand each market, how each type of property works in that market. So for somebody who's trying to invest a lot in a single asset, it's very concentrated and a lot of times just outside their knowledge base. I mean, how would someone here living in Houston know which building to buy in Tokyo? So it becomes really challenging. In terms of what's been available in the marketplace, many people moved into listed public REITs. But we found over time those aren't as correlated to real estate. They're more correlated to the equity markets. So what most investors have done is they own their home. They buy buildings in the markets they know. They buy REITs. And more recently in the retail channels, there have been some open-ended products available to them, but not many. Then you see the closed-ended products, right? So when you start looking at those, it's just a different risk sector. And that's one of the things people talk about real estate. There's a world of difference between 100% occupied gateway city income-producing asset to a piece of dirt in an emerging market where someone may build a hotel one day. I mean, just very, very different risk profiles across the sector. So it makes it really hard for for most people investing less than, you know, a couple billion dollars into it to really get that access. So you're sketching out some of the differences between different property types or even subclasses of assets in the real estate. And the specialization, as I understand it, is really in core type properties. Could you sketch that out for us relative to what does core mean to a to a layman? <laughs> sure. In the world of real estate, you have core, you have value add, and you have opportunistic, right? So core is the existing building in a great location, leased to strong tenants that's income producing. It's the kind of asset that's going to make money over time just by being in the right spot for the right service for its marketplace. And half of your income is coming from rents, right? Value add is when you buy something that could be a great building, great location, but for whatever reason, it's not occupied. Maybe the building's old and dated. Maybe it's just 
you know, a big tenant just left or or maybe it's in a lesser market or a lesser location, but it exists and it's income producing, but just not as safe as the core. That would be value add. And usually a value add strategy is more of a closed ended fund where they're buying it, they're fixing it, they're flipping it. And then you have opportunistic. So opportunistic is the highest risk. That's where you're buying into a fund or into a specific building that's dirt. You're building the building, you're leasing the building, and then you're hoping to sell it and flip it. So they're very different risk perspectives. So to put it in perspective, a last minute industrial building outside of San Francisco or New York City, 100% lease to Amazon, delivering those last mile goods on a long-term lease with fixed rent bumps, that would be core. Some dirt that you're hoping to build a multifamily and rent it out in a suburb in Miami, that would be opportunistic because you're taking the risk on the construction costs, you're taking the risk on the lease up, and you're taking the risk that the rents will be what you hope they're going to be and you're going to be able to get what you want when you sell it. So very different risk profiles. Kind of like the equity markets, right? People invest in the equity markets. There's a world of difference between a blue chip stock or going into the Dow index versus... So that's a good analog. So core is kind of blue chip. Yeah, core is blue chip. Income producing, and then on the other end you know, of the spectrum is more growth, yes. more appreciation potential. Exactly. So I guess, you know, with that and looking at the spectrum, we right now in the U.S. and really across the world, we're getting an increase in inflation, increasing in interest rates. What does that do? Does that affect the spectrum of growth to opportunistic or, excuse me, core to opportunistic in the same way? Or is it different? It'll be different. It's different, both core to opportunistic. Inflation, especially, and interest rates are very volatile triggers across our whole economy. Where we see them in real estate, though, it differs by risk profile, it differs by country, and it differs by sector. So, for example, residential. Residential real estate, and that could be single-family homes, but mostly in the institutional side, we're talking more about multifamily. When you look at an apartment building, they're annual leases. So you're going to be able to step up those leases with inflation to whatever the market rate is, unless you're in certain markets with rent control restrictions. But for the most part across the U.S., you get that inflation protection there. You will face interest rate risk, right? If interest rates go up, cap rates will go up. If your rents are outpacing the cap rate, you're still seeing appreciation. So you're much more protected. However, in the U.S., on a core office building, right, you might have 5, 10, 15-year leases. Those might be flat leases. So if interest rates go up and cap rates go up, but your rent is staying the same, then you're going to have risk of short-term devaluation. Now, where it compares in core versus non-core, that's very cyclical, right? So your core asset, if it's in a trophy location, and yes, maybe you might have flat rents for a few years, and interest rates go up in 2022, by 2025, 2026, those rents start to change, the building is still in the best location, and that value comes back. Where you have the higher risk on the opportunistic side is, say, you're building that building, and you bought it at the pricing before. You're building it in an inflationary environment so the construction costs more than you originally thought it was going to cost. You know, now you're hoping to rent it for rents in a sector, in office, for example. Maybe the rents aren't going to be that much higher a couple of years from now. But your cap rate on exit might be two, three, four hundred 400 basis points higher than you thought. You're not going to make as much money. So you have to be really careful in the opportunistic side to make sure what you're doing is going to have enough revenue growth to offset any cap rate expansion. 
The reason I caveated globally versus the U.S. is the U.S. has a very specific rent structure, and it's tied to how many years your lease is. In residential, if you have annual leases, no problem. Twelve, you know, less than twelve months, you're going to get a pop. When you're looking at 5, 10, 15-year leases, which you often see in office and industrial, they might have bumps, but those bumps will not outpace a 2 to 3% growth per year. And if in an inflationary environment, that's just not enough to compensate you. But globally, we see a lot more inflation indexation in leases. So I'm looking at a real estate portfolio right now for grocery anchored centers in Germany. So that's a portfolio of 140 assets. It's German-based, and it's unlike the U.S. where we have our Safeway and we have our hair salon and we have all these different tenants. There you have your grocery, maybe a pharmacy, and that's it. But those leases are 10, 15, 20-year leases too, but they're indexed to inflation each year. So you get a step up to a minimum amount or inflation, whatever's greater. So you have that protection in that type of environment. And that's very helpful when inflation's high, less so when it's not. And that's why global diversification becomes really important in the low-risk space because when you're looking across sectors and you're looking across countries, you get sometimes in a cycle, one area will do better, some others, and having that diversification really helps. The challenge in real estate, of course, is for many people, they believe in diversification in equities. You see that across all the equity markets, but it's hard to get that in real estate for most people. I think you're alluding to one of these facets that I wanted to illustrate from our family office survey is the incredible home bias that exists in the United States, whereby most of our respondents in the survey, almost 79% of their assets under management or in their family office is located in the U.S., which, of course, you know, you would think the majority would be. By contrast, on a global basis, only 44% have the same domestic weightings. And if I transpose that onto real estate, I'm going to guess it's more like in the 90s. And so that strikes me as I guess maybe an underestimation of the opportunity set that resides outside, but also the amount of confusion or, you know, complexity that owning a foreign asset perhaps entails and maybe could address that issue. I mean, why do you think that bias exists if you had, say, two like kind assets, but are in different geographies, I mean, why would you just negate one because of geography? You know, it's an interesting question. We go back and forth with that because that happens both on the retail side and the institutional side. It's not just retail investors. So part of it is definitely access and just comfort level, right? People know what they understand in real estate, but a lot of it is cultural too. I mean, what we found, the investable universe in real estate is closer to 40 to 45% U.S. And most global investors look at that and say, well, then we should be closer to 40 to 45% U.S. But when you look at most people raised in many countries outside of the U.S., they travel a lot, they're exposed to other countries, and they know that they want access to the U.S. They want access to, so it, it's more ingrained in their investment style to be global from day one. Many U.S. investors are comfortable where they're comfortable. And real estate, especially if you're buying a specific building, they want to know it, understand it, touch it, see it, because it's a physical building. And that gives them that comfort. Even though as they start investing in funds, they get concerned that it's higher risk being elsewhere. 
to be fair, it really depends on what you're going into. If you're doing development in emerging markets, there's no question it's much higher risk than staying in the U.S. But that's not all that's available in real estate, right? If you're trying to build a building in China, there's all kinds of political risk around that. If you're going to, you know, Central America, you have significant, in South America, you have currency risk tied to that. You have a lot of risk that can be there. But certainly on the core real estate side, the income producing side, apartment buildings, industrial buildings, office buildings in London, in Paris, in Tokyo, in Sydney are not only stable, they're actually a very healthy diversifier to a portfolio. When we look at core real estate over any cycle for the past three cycles, we see that the volatility is less when it's globally diversified and the risk adjusted returns are higher. But you need to be able to have access to it in a way where you're getting into the core real estate, where you're working with managers who are local, who are seeing and touching and managing what they know. So there is a significant portion of just access for many investors. They just don't know how to find those partners. They don't know how to find those products. Can you point to like a segment of the market where there's a mismatch due to geography? Like, for instance, I think I read recently the difference in square footage in U.S. retail versus like Europe. Maybe you know those stats, but it's a huge differential. Like we're like wildly overbuilt in the U.S. relative to other places in the world. And that's kind of interesting because you would think that the scarcity of you know, retail or maybe the abundance of retail here creates a mismatch in valuation. There's no question. The world of retail has changed significantly over the last few years, partly because of e-commerce. More and more people are buying certain foods online, especially when it comes to commodity things. People don't necessarily need to pick out their toilet paper in person. For things they like to try on or things like food, buying their fruit, vegetables, we, we do see people wanting to go to stores more for that. But definitely the volume of retail we have is not commensurate to the demand for retail. So what we're finding in retail in the U.S. particularly is for the right located high demographic, which means higher income so people have more disposable income, or supply constrained markets where you only have one or two grocers. They're doing fine right now. But the power centers, a lot of the malls are really not. There's actually a term called the Home Depot effect of what's happened in the U.S. So the Home Depot effect came from Home Depot wanting to improve its brand. At the time when they were building out these Home Depots, there were lots of mom and pop type hardware stores. And so Home Depot said, well, we want to be everywhere. We want to be where everyone can see us and we want to be their go-to place. So they started opening Home Depots every five to 10 miles over most MSAs over the whole country. But Home Depot doesn't just open a Home Depot. They build their Home Depot and they build, it's part of a park that they would sell to a developer who would put in PetSmart or Petco or TJ Maxx or Barnes & Noble to fill that what we call power center. Then Lowe's saw this and said, well, no, if we need, we're competing with Home Depot. So they started making Lowe's near where there's a Home Depot. So you started getting a lot more retail, less because they had done a supply demand analysis to determine what their sales would be, but more because they were trying to make sure their brand remained strong. And that led to excessive retail development over two decades. And we're now in a situation where the U.S. per capita is materially more than the rest of the world. 
After the U.S., it would fall precipitously, but be a combination of Canada, the U.K., and Australia. And then another precipitous fall before you see the other countries. So the risks that we have in retail are just non-existent in many of the other countries. Many of the other countries, you have wait lists to get into their retail. And a lot of their retail is less commodity-based and more food and beverage and activity. We see parts of the world where the retail, especially in countries that have difficult climates, right? People will go to an enclosed retail center for dinner and see a movie where they don't have to be outside, whether it's too hot or too cold, that's very attractive. So to be able to look globally and say, does this building make sense based on it, the sales of the tenants, is their rent less than 20% of their revenue from those sales? So you know they're healthy. They're gonna not going to go bankrupt. They're not going to leave their lease. And what kind of foot traffic are you seeing in this center? Can someone easily build a new center and poach your tenants in the future? These are all questions you need to be asking. But there's significant risk in the U.S. for certain parts of retail right now and obsolescence risk. And so having it globally diversified and working with managers who know retail is really important. Right. And relative to that obsolescence risk, it brings to bear another question I had about sustainability and ESG standards and the differences between what's going on here in the United States where it seems to be a lot of lip service versus some real change that's been affected outside of the United States. To what extent is that going to migrate here? And how does that impact markets for legacy assets and development and across geographies? I mean, it seems to me like it's a Gordian knot. It's definitely something we need to be thinking about. Unfortunately, what we hear a lot from a lot of American-based investors is that I care about the environment, I care about climate change, but I want to make sure I'm profitable. It's kind of interesting to me to hear that because the two are very correlated, right? What we're seeing for profitability in real estate, you buy something, you own it, it must maintain its value or increase its value for it to be profitable by definition. For it to increase value, it means you have more people who want to buy it, are willing to pay a higher price for it. The only way that's going to happen is if those buyers are interested in buying it. What we're seeing in Europe is very strict regulation is coming in place as it's tying to the Paris Accord. They want buildings to be net zero carbon by certain dates. Efficiency of various thresholds are being determined. And major investors are going to be required to adhere to those guidelines. And we're seeing that in Asia as well. So when you're buying a core income-producing building or you're building something to be sold, you might be buying it today. You're not selling it tomorrow. You're selling it years from now. When you're selling it, you want to make sure those buyers are willing to buy it. So it needs to be built to the standard that they're willing to pay for it, for it to be a long-term hold. In an opportunistic fund, right, by the time you sell it, it's now core. So those people are buying it with a 10, 15-year horizon. Office buildings in the U.S. are the perfect example of where we see a lot of risk. An office building, many of them in the U.S., many at good CBD locations, are older buildings by definition, 100, 200 years old. Those buildings are not built with the carbon in mind. <laughs> so we see lead gold and silver. And Can they be converted? 
they can be, but they can be very expensive. So the specific building that you're buying, you really have to look at and see how much does this particular building cost. A lead gold building could be somewhat efficient, but it could be a long way from net zero carbon. Another one may not. We just looked at a building recently in Vancouver that about one and a half percent of the building value would be the cost to make it net zero carbon. We looked at another building in New York City that was closer to 20 to 25 percent. Both are strong buildings. Both are currently valued at the same cap rate and discount rate. So currently valued at the same risk. There's a big disconnect there because one has long-term sustainability, one does not. And so you have to be very, very careful as to what you're going into to make sure you don't risk that obsolescence risk or devaluation risk by having a more limited buyer pool if it can't be meeting the, the global guidelines that are being put in place. One part of the market that I think has been getting a lot of attention is the residential single family house market here in the United States. And this idea of starter homes for young families, you know, I think the narrative over the past at least year has been, you know, they're getting outbid by large institutional managers. What are your thoughts around that? And also how are they, these managers scaling all of these properties that are many, many, many thousands? Yeah. How do they deal with rising costs on stuff like yeah, that? Absolutely. How does that, does that scale? It's interesting. So when you look at most of the world, home ownership is not as high as it is in the U.S. and Canada, right? Many, many people own their own home here, and that's heavily subsidized through Fannie and Freddie mortgage rates. There's nowhere else in the world you can get a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. That's allowed people to buy homes. So the concept of companies and institutions owning homes and renting them is really common globally, just less so here. It became common in the 90s for apartment buildings that blew up and is now normal. Now we're looking at that has been happening for single family homes. What we've learned from institutions is if you only buy a handful, it's not very efficient. Right. So what we're starting to see, you know, many people who live in the U.S. get these robocalls all the time. I'll buy your home. I don't even have to see it. Those are feeders into large institutions who are amassing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of homes to rent. To be able to make it efficient to manage something like that, they have to have a team on the ground in each market they're in. If they're big enough, they'll have their own staff, their own electricians and plumbers and roofers and everyone. So if something goes wrong with a house, they can send their own staff that are vertically integrated out to finish it. What we're seeing a lot of now, which is, I think, going to continue, is the custom-built for-rent housing market. So these aren't houses that they're buying for other people. They're building them to be rented. And what they do there is they make them all the same. So it's kind of like an apartment building on its side is the best way to look at it. So instead of each house having a pool, they'll have a community pool. They'll have community amenities. They'll have dog walkers and anything else they can do to attract people to go to those homes. But they're much easier to manage. And a lot of the newer construction we're seeing is more for that purpose. What we're also seeing, too, you know, there's a big debate of whether it's right or wrong for institutions to own single-family homes. Yes, it can drive pricing up. It also puts a floor on pricing when homes fall because institutions will be more apt to come in. So it does protect the valuation of the homes, too, on a downward market. So it, there's a bandwidth that they'll value between. But most single-family renters are focusing on areas that are more expensive to get into within the market in a better school district. 
And that allows for families who couldn't afford to live in those markets to be able to rent and have their kids go to those those top schools. So there are some sustainability components to it as well. But it is a very controversial subject with people have very different views. But this is something that is done globally consistently. And it's newer to the U.S., but it's been happening for more than 10 years. It's just increasing in scale. That's remarkable. I wanted to present you with a couple of findings, actually a couple of questions that came off of our survey and see how you respond relative to your investment base. And so the first one is how easy or difficult would you say it is to find decorrelated returns in the current macro environment? Of the respondents in the U.S., 77% said it was very difficult. Globally, it was 71% said it was very difficult. Only... 3% globally said it was fairly easy. So there's quite a lopsided range of answers there that kind of jumped out at us. And so the first one's question is about correlation. Second question is, I no longer feel that high quality fixed income helps me diversify my overall portfolio risk. 58% in the U.S. answered affirmative to that question and 63% globally, which you think about that and the capital allocators' choices relative to fixed income and, and where it has been represented in the overall pie chart, that's a remarkable statement, a lack of endorsement in what has heretofore been a very large chunk of the allocation pie. And I guess the question is, is how do you respond to that? And it relates to real estate, but real estate, can it be an answer? And in particular, what segments? Because it It strikes me that opportunistic real estate doesn't really ascribe to the risk-reward equation that you see or have seen historically with bonds. But what about core real estate? Can it be a surrogate in a way, not a total replacement, but a place to go help fight inflation, number one, and get some income, and then hopefully, you know, offset the degradation of real returns. Yeah, exactly. I think, I mean, with fixed income, right, we were all raised on the concept of certain percentage of your portfolio should be equities, certain percent should be bonds. That was very true in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, where you could see anywhere from a 4 to a 12% return in bonds and in your savings accounts. We haven't seen that in a long time. It's going to be a long time until we see it again. I think as we're facing inflation and rates are rising, it's going to go up a little bit. But the idea that a significant portion of your portfolio is going to be the stable income-producing asset class that you can rely on, I think is just much less the case. And so needing to diversify that fixed income bucket is becoming more and more important to many. What we have found is the lowest risk return is going to be the bond. It's going to be the most stable. It's going to be the lowest returning too. The equities are obviously higher. When you look at real estate, I think you hit the nail on the head. When you look at the opportunistic real estate, where you're taking construction risk, valuation risk, lease-up risk, that is the highest risk. It's an alternative asset class. It should exceed equities because you don't have the liquidity. You can always sell a stock. These are 10, 12-year business plans that you can't get out of in the middle. So that should be a shoot for the moon. You pick your strategy, you pick your timing in the market cycle, and it it has a place in a portfolio, but it's not a surrogate for fixed income. Where real estate can add a lot is the core side to as fixed income, because now you're looking at a building that is valuable in a good location, it's existing and it's leased. So you don't have these other risks tied to it. And it's income producing. 
what part of that sector is really critical, right? Because the inflation component helps with a residential portfolio. A well-located multifamily building gets the inflation component. In an inflationary environment, that's great. If the environment becomes deflationary or flat, you're not going to see the income growth there. Where you do, though, is in the industrial sector, in sectors that have longer-term leases, where you have investment-grade tenants. I mean, really, if... Amazon or Walmart sign a 10-year lease where they're paying a fixed rate for 10 years, how is that that different from a bond? The only difference is the bond is giving you an exact principal payout. The real estate, you're not sure if it's going to be worth more or less 10 years from now. But if you're buying well-located, strong real estate, it should be worth more. And so when we look at the returns of core real estate over the last, I think the last study I read was over the last 27-year period, the core real estate return was between that of a bond and an equity. You're looking at between globally benchmarked between a six and eight net where half of that's income, which is higher than what you're seeing in the bonds. And so it doesn't surprise me that many family office and institutions are saying that core real estate could be a surrogate for part of their fixed income. Probably shouldn't be all of it. You know, you're going to want some credit. You're going to want some other sectors. But it makes sense that real estate is in the conversation. It also doesn't surprise me from your earlier point of how difficult is it to access. The reality is these types of products, if you're a 20, 30, $40 billion pension fund, they can go out and try to do it on their own. There are multi-manager products like ours that does do this, but there aren't many. And so you need to look across and I guess contact your financial advisors and look across what's available to you because they are very difficult to access. There aren't a whole list of mutual funds or ETFs that do this, but it's something that everyone should be looking for as part of their portfolio. So you're saying flopping into the real estate ETF doesn't get you where you need to go? No, the listed security is a problem because, well, it's not a problem. It has a place, right? But it's a listed security, which means it's part of your equities portfolio. And it's more correlated to the equity markets. We've seen that. When COVID first hit in the GSC, the REITs were the first to fall. They plummeted and they moved with the equity market. They didn't move with the private unlisted market. They're often trading for a premium or discount to the underlying asset valuation because you have equity flows moving in and out. So it's a great part of a, a strong equity portfolio. But it's not a replacement for unlisted private real estate. As you look around the world and the opportunity set, what markets are you looking at? What markets excite you right now? Yeah, if you could pick one, but you can't pick the U.S. <laughs> yeah. If you had to pick a region, you could only invest in that region. What would it be? Oh, that's an, a very hard question. It's like which child? Pick number one. <laughs> pick which number, fish is your favorite? Give yeah. us number one and two. Well, that's easy. If I have to pick a region and it's not Americas, it's going to be Europe and Asia. (laughs) It's not Africa or (laughs) Antarctica. But no, I'd say it depends on the the sector. I think when it comes to retail, although I very much like this German portfolio I was talking about specifically for that reason, it's targeted German inflation index. Generally speaking, I like retail in Asia. There's much less of it. It is trafficked for purposes other than just shopping. So I'd be looking at those markets. I'm very bullish in markets like Singapore and South Korea and Sydney. But not China. I'm very nervous about China. China is going to be a while before it's fully vaccinated. You're facing significant quarantine issues, supply chain issues. Also, as China is taking on more of a role in Hong Kong, the combination of COVID and that factor is leading to a lot of expats leaving Hong Kong. 
And we're seeing that markets like Singapore and Seoul and Sydney are the beneficiary of that out-migration. So there's dispersion among regions and also, I would assume, similar assets. Definitely. Yeah. If you told me my favorite two office markets in the world right now, I'd probably say Singapore and Vancouver. Vancouver also is the benefit of being the best climate in Canada. So people did not leave during COVID to go to a nicer place to live. And it has a very friendly immigration policy. So we're seeing a lot of companies move there because they can hire more staff. Do they have enchiladas in Vancouver? Uh, they do, but I have a, to say they don't compare problem. to Hugo's from last night. So. Maybe we'll stay put, Liz. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But yeah, retail, it's very specific. I mean, I, I like German grocery anchored retail. I like mixed use retail in parts of Asia. Residential, I think the U.S. residential, I know I'm not allowed to mention it, but the U.S. multifamily residential market's interesting. However, the U.S. residential market has seen vast appreciation since COVID, whereas the rest of the world has not. So we've been very bullish on the Nordics for residential, particularly Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. And we also like the Netherlands a lot for residential. Industrial has been growing everywhere, mainly because of e-commerce. The U.S. is well supplied in industrial and has seen significant increases. Like we're talking multiples over the last three years of its valuation because of just material rent growth and the supply demand imbalance. So I still like the fundamentals. I think rents are going to continue. But as we're seeing rising rates, it's going to have a bit more pressure on the cap rates. Whereas we haven't seen that cap rate compression and growth in Western Europe and in Australia. So those are markets that we're a bit more bullish on in, in industrial in the next couple of years. But it just leads to why the global diversification is so important. If you're in a product or a series of products that you're they're tactically moving amongst these regions, you then have that protection by definition. You know, the U.S. has done much better for the last three years. It may not do as well on a relative basis because no one is the winner all the time. Makes sense. Okay, this is my last question, Liz. It's not to say. Yeah, we could the, talk about uh, longer, but we got to wrap up. I know you've been to Houston before, but maybe not recently. So I wanted to see what observation you had about our beloved hometown besides the culinary tour that we, you know, you've experienced. Well, definitely the food is incredible, which was, I, I had been here before uh, a few times. I know I had the best pecan pie I'd ever had at a, the good barbecue place. Oh, that was wow. fantastic. But no, the food was great. You know what? It's been really interesting. Houston is almost like its own economy, right? Like I've come here before, but I've been in different parts of Houston and each part is so different. But just driving around the architecture, especially in the housing is is breathtaking to me. I mean, you get these really fascinating brick houses that are just beautiful that you don't see in a lot of the country. But the art scene is incredible. And I feel like that is something that was just not known to me. And I don't think it's advertised. I used to live in New York City. I live in San Francisco now. I lived in London. I traveled. I love art. And I'm just blown away by that the history. That was not a plant. Yeah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> we saw some good art the last couple of days in our in our tour of downtown Houston. And um, so yeah, just we appreciate you saying that. You walk into a lobby a and you're like, I can't believe this is hanging here. And That's so, it's, so wonderful to hear. It really is. It's like a hidden gem. Great, yeah. great observation. Well, we appreciate having you here in Houston and we hope to have you back very soon. Thank you. Yeah, please contact your financial advisors. Find real estate. Thank <laughs> you. Got it. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you, Barry. This is Liz DeMontron signing off. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thanks.